This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, so welcome again. Welcome everybody. Welcome all our online viewers, our live viewers. So uh, tonight, uh, give you a little bit of a, uh, just a warning. It, it will be a little bit morbid maybe in the beginning a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to end in a very, very uplifting, um, very uplifting note. Uh, <clears throat> just for whoever is not, um, you know, hasn't heard. So my grandfather unfortunately passed away uh, this past Shabbat from the cor- coronavirus. And um, I wanted to start off the class by not giving a hesped, not giving a eulogy, because we're not allowed to give eulogies during the month of Nisan. But I wanted to go and uh, speak a little bit about him and his qualities that we could learn and gain from it, specifically related to uh, to this time. Uh, just to give a little bit of a background, he was uh, born during World War One, and at the age of 22, it was uh, 1939. He was taken. It was this is during uh, World War Two. He was taken to uh, Dachau, uh, the concentration camp, and he was there for about four weeks. Where his father, which is my great grandfather, went and gave. The, an SS officer, $10,000, literally all the money that he had, so that he could basically sneak away my grandfather, his mother, and my grandfather's younger younger brother. And they snuck them out, they snuck those three out to the Czech border, and then they had to go and travel by themselves to the sister's house, which, through miracles, which we don't have the time, they ended up uh, getting there. My grandfather then went, and he was supposed to go, and go on a ship to... Uh, to Israel, and it was on March 4, 14, 1939. He went on. He went on the ship, and, the sh- and they told him that the younger brother was he was too young, and he couldn't go on the ship. There's another ship that's going to be leave- leaving for, with seven hundred children. So they had nothing to do. They had to leave the younger child there with uh, with the sister, and, uh, th- and then he went on the boat to go to uh, to Israel. Four hours after he left, the Hitler Yamashimo came in and overtook the place. And unfortunately, his younger brother and his older sister and her uh, her sub- and her uh, children all perished in the Holocaust. So he was saved by four hours. Four hours is where he was saved, in, you know, uh, from the Holocaust over there. Now he lived a very long life. Hashem. He lived until 102. And he always attributed his long life to the fact that uh, one time when he was a little boy, he went to a huge rabbi by the name of Rabbi Chonan Wasserman. And Rabbi Chonan Wasserman was testing a lot of boys on Mishnayot. And he had a bucket, like a little ca- uh, container of candy, and he kept on giving candy to the boys after they passed their test. And when he got to my grandfather, he told my grandfather, uh, after he tested him, and my grandfather did well, they, he said, listen, I don't have any more candies. Uh, all I could do is give you a blessing for a long life. And my grandfather attributed his long life to, to this blessing by, by uh, Rabbi Hanan Wasserman. But the, the actual focus that I wanted to, to speak about is there are certain character traits. What the, our sages tell us that after a person passes away, their good deeds, their character traits, a person, you're able to like grab it. You're able to like grab it and, and utilize that for your own and, and grow from that on your own. So I was thinking what, and I, I found a few things that are very, very apropos to these times that we could all utilize and, and grab these, these powers that are just, you know, floating in there waiting to be grabbed. The first thing is, is that my grandfather always used to, and by the way, this shoe, this is Lilu Nishmat, my grandfather, Avraham, 
uh, Ben Chaim Yehuda. And actually, while we're on it, we also have Lilu Nishmat Yecheskel Ben Tzila, which just incidentally, whoever has been listening to our classes knows that I've been saying that that was my uncle, his son. So it was a son and a father passed away in a period of a few short months. And we're also learning tonight to Harriet Bat Lillian, to Yaakov Ben Sarah, to Rosa Bat Mazalut, and to Avram Savi Ben Tzipora, and Besoich Shar Choyle Yisrael. You know, now it's very, it's so scary of what's going on over here. May the entire Klal Yisrael, entire world have a complete Lufuash Guf, and we can be done with this Magifa, with this, with this plague. And, and go back to the regular learning, but even better yet, to actually go back to the Bet HaMikdash is what we really want. So, of the character traits that I wanted to discuss, number one is that he always would constantly thank God for, mer- for like his miracles. He saw his life as a miracle. And I went to visit him with my entire family, Baruch Hashem, we got to see him uh, about three, uh, two months ago, two and a half months ago, we went to see him. And I saw him, we were... You know, we went, he's, he was in, in Los Angeles by my aunt and uncle. So we went to visit him and we had the whole family sitting there and eating dinner by my aunt and uncle. And I constantly heard him under his tongue, you know, like say he was, he, you know, he was from Israel, spoke many languages, but he always conversed in Hebrew. And he constantly saying under his tongue, under his breath, Zehamatanashali, Zehamatanashali, which literally means the translation means, this is my present. This is my present. He saw his life as a constant present. Like, no matter... And, again, he didn't have the easiest life. He went... Anybody that went through the Holocaust didn't have an easy life. No, you know, and and to say that this is a present... And not only that, the, the second thing that I want to actually bring out that we could utilize and during this time is that he never complained about anything. Yeah, I've never... You, you never hear him complain. And not only that, it was like a thing that he didn't complain. Like, he would say, like, I, you know, Hashem, God, I don't complain to you don't send the Malach HaMavet, don't send the angel of death to me. Maybe that's why he lived so long. Maybe that was that you could also attribute to uh, 102 years that he would never, ever complain, no matter what he did. And, you know, like, he had, you know, besides the Holocaust, the life wasn't as easy for him. Finally, when he when he escaped the Holocaust, there was, the, you know, the there was no kosher food, and he had to go and he lived for, you know, for, for uh, who knows how long, and bread, sardines, and honey. Uh, then finally he got married, he had four children, and the during the fifth, uh, the, when my grandmother was giving birth during her the fifth child, she passed away with the child. So he went through that, and then you know it was just on and on and on and on. And he never like there's one thing that that that's so interesting is that no matter what life threw at him, he kept on going. He kept on going. So these are the three three aspects that I really want to focus today. Where I feel like you know when you're dealing with somebody from a previous generation, somebody that lived during the time of the Chafetz Chaim. This is somebody that, that you know, got a bracha from Rebbe Chana Wasserman. You're talking about from a different generation, how they lived their life. And it's and it's interesting because when you look at people that went through the Holocaust, went through terrible, terrible suffering, how do they have that power? The power to just keep on going. The power to, like, not stop. And, and to have somebody go through so much and never uh, complain? Never a complaint that that's mind-boggling. And not only that, not, he always took everything with a smile, with a joke. I don't know, maybe I get, you know, my twisted sense of humor from him could be, he, you know, when he would come back, let's say, from a hospital, he was an older man, so he's, you know, had a few frequent visits in the, in the hospital, he would make a joke out of it. He's like, oh, you know, I just went to check to make sure that everyone's working, and now I'm back here, so it's, everything's okay. He, like, he wouldn't want people to worry. It's a different generation of what we're dealing with. And when we're going through the hardships of what we're going through right now, I feel like these pow- these these character traits 
are so important. They're so important to help us get through what we're going. So number one, to always realize that God is giving us miracles. The, the whole, to, to realize that you should say under, under your breath, this is my present. God is constantly giving us presence. And we have to go and appreciate that. Number two is never complain. No matter what life throws against you, never complain. And we'll soon see why and how. And number three, that no matter what it is, we always have to keep on going. There's no giving up in life. There's no giving up. As long as you have breath, you got to keep on going. Now, a few weeks ago, when the whole coronavirus, you know, started and, well, started in, you know, affecting us, I guess, the people in America, the hardships was what we were like, you know, like I was thinking, I'm like, okay, now the kids are going to be home and we're going to have to entertain the kids. We're going to have to teach the kids. We're going to have to prepare for Pesach at the same time. We're going to have to go shopping. And then it was like, okay, that's a lot, but you know, okay, fine, we'll get through it. And then they're like, minyanim stopped. We can't go to synagogues anymore. And then like one thing after another, getting worse and worse. And then till finally I got the biggest blow, which was this past Motzei Shabbat, after Shabbat, where I found out that my grandfather passed away from the coronavirus. And to tell you, like, also, just, just to give you an understanding of what people are going through right now. Like, you know, I give you everybody a bracha that nobody should go through this. And nobody, we don't need any more deaths. We're, we're, we got the point, God. But let me tell you what the people that did experience this and what they're going through. On Friday, my grandfather was not feeling well, so he went to the hospital. By Shabbat day, that was less than 24 hours later, he passed away already. That's how quick. And not only that, the saddest part is that the hospitals don't even allow people to come into the room. Because of the coronavirus. So they, um, there are people that are unfortunately passing away all alone. Nobody's by their bedside. They don't have, we got Bo Hashem, people to go and say, we do. We had Bo Hashem that we were able to get certain things done. But this is what people are going through. And what's the difficult part over here is that the normal way to deal with loss is there's a funeral, there's eulogies, there's shiva, there's things that are put in place to go and help the people that are suffering through the losses go through it. Now, you don't get any of that. There's none of that. The, the 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 situation is so crazy, and I'll tell you what was going on. This is in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles is is uh, Hashem is not as bad as as it is in New York. In Los Angeles, they said on Sunday, the Chaver Kadisha told my aunt that there are 16 bodies waiting for tahara, waiting for purification. 16 bodies in one day, just waiting for purification. Purif- it's mind-boggling. And not only that. How did he have to go and get buried with a minyan, just a minyan, and very quickly? And and we were lucky that we were able to get that. So I was thinking, and I was like, you know, this Pesach is going to be extremely, extremely difficult for me. I, I was thinking for myself, I started off, the, I'm like, is it, why is it going to be difficult for me? Because my grandfather, he wasn't just, and just uh, so everyone understands, this is my only grandparent that I've ever had. I've never met any other grandparent. Uh, this is the only grandparent that I met. Um, uh, all of the other ones, unfortunately, passed away before I was born. So... This grandfather, besides being the, my only grandparent, he also lived b- with us for ever since I was born. He spent half a year in my house and half a year with my aunt and uncle in California. So this is some this is someone that I grew up with all the time around. And the reason why Pesach was is is such a difficult holiday is because Pesach was the holiday that he was in my he he was by my house. That was the holiday that he was by us, and he ran the entire the entire sedel. So like. Pesach, all I, all the, the, you know, everything that I know about Pesach of tradition, it's all from him. It's all nonstop. And this is the first holiday that I have to go without him. And I was like, wow, 
this is going to be very, very difficult for me. And then I realized that I have to work during the time before Pesach. I have to work to be able, I have to work very hard to be able to go and have true Simchat Yom Tov. You have to have, you know, there's an obligation we're going to soon speak about to having the Simchat on Yom Tov. So how am I going to, it's something that I need to work on. It's not something that just comes. Sometimes you have to go and work on it. But then I was thinking, I'm like, you know, so many people are going through hardships right now. It's not just it's not just me and what I'm going through. There, not only, and I shouldn't even say so many. Every single person right now is going through something. It could be just being cooped up in your own home. That's still a hardship. It could be nervous about getting sick. It could be nervous about dying. It could be nervous about losing family members. And then it could be nervous about, you know, like it, it, the stress about like dealing with the loss of family members. It could be, you know, how much we're getting about the, the, the you know, people's financial situations are, are crumbling. And not only that, on top of all that, you have to entertain and teach your kids at the same time. And then you have the, you know, the Shalom Bayit in the house. And then you have people that are making Pesach for the first time. There are people that are going to be alone for this Pesach. There are, you know, there are people that, that always went to programs, to hotels, to whatnot. And now they're going to be, you know, by themselves at home. And they've never done it before. And that's very difficult. So with all this coming to Pesach, I decided that what I need to speak about is what I feel I need to speak about is Simchat Yom Tov, the, the ability to go during these difficult times to have happiness during the holiday of upcoming of Pesach. Now, the obligation to be happy during a holiday is a biblical commandment. It's based off a pasuk in Devarim, chapter 16, verse 14. It says, that you have to be happy during your holidays. And the, the Tshuva Chagadalia goes and brings down that in order to fulfill this, this mitzvah, you could do whatever it is to bring you happiness. Uh, the Gemara Psachim, page 109a, goes and says that a person is obligated to make his children and the members of his household happy on Yom Tov. So it could either be with meat, it could be with wine, it could be with clothing, whatever it is, a person has to go and work on themselves and even purchase things that would make them happy this coming Yom Tov. And boy, do we need it, this Yom Tov more than anything else. To tell you how important this is, I want to share with you a Kavayasha. This Kavayasha, and I, I do recommend everybody who is able to, to look it up, it's in the 90th chapter in Kavayasha, and how important it is to say the Haggadah with joy. And I want, he quotes the, the Zohar in Parshat Vayikra, and he says that one must rejoice on the night of Pesach. Why? Because there is rejoicing on high as well as down below. And therefore, he continues, that one must recite the songs and praises of the night in joy, besimcha. And you have to refrain from any anger, any kas. And you have to also, he goes on and says, you have to make sure when you recite the Haggadah not to rush through it. Now people are going to be home, they're going to be, you have to be careful. This is very, very important. And you can't, says, says the, the Kabbalah Yashar, which is bringing down the Zohar, it says you cannot view this as a burden. Chas v'shalom. He says it's a mitzvah from the Torah. It's a mitzvah, say, it's a biblical commandment for each and every single Jew to recall the miracles, key word over here, miracles that the, that God created for our forefathers and for us. And then the Kabbalah goes, uh, based off the Zohar, and it says in the merit of this, HaKadosh Baruch the Holy One blesses He, will spread His wings over us and continually to save us in every place and every road and will continue performing miracles and wonders on our behalf. Look at the, the power of what you have when you're saying the Seda with, Haggad, with the Haggadah with joy. And then he goes and he says something very scary. And he says, and I'm quoting, but if a person views the recitation of the Haggadah as a burden and he's saying it without joy and intention of the heart, he will not merit having miracles performed on his behalf in times of danger. 
I'm like, I was, I was learning this. I was like, wow, that this is, this is beyond. This is, you know what that is? We are in times of danger. This is what we need. This is who we need the, 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 the over here so badly. This is why I feel that it's very important that every single one of us work extra hard this Pesach for the Simchat of Yom Tov. Now, so that's really what I want to go and discuss tonight, Be'ezrat Hashem with God's help. When Yom Tov comes, when the holiday, when the Chag comes, we have to remove all our dagot, all our worries. I want to share with you a story that I've shared before, something so important, so beautiful, uh, brings out this point very, very nicely. There was once a psychology professor that he comes in one day and he's holding a glass of water. And he looks at, he goes to the class and he says to the class, how heavy is this glass of water? So they're all looking and they're looking how heavy it's eight ounces and this, and they're trying to, they're saying in ounces and then they're changing a couple of pounds and they're, they're all shooting out different um, measures of weight. And then the professor goes and he's, and, and he goes and he says, the absolute weight of this doesn't matter. What matters is, is how long am I going to hold this? So if I hold this like this for a minute or two, it's very light. Because what was the question? The question is, how heavy is this cup? How heavy is this cup? So if I hold it for a minute or two, it's light. If I hold it for an hour, my arm probably will start aching maybe, you know, I'll get some some cramps. But if I hold it for a day straight, then I'll feel completely numb and I'll be completely paralyzed. And this is what the professor goes on and says. He says, your stresses and your worries, your da'agot, your, 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 your troubles that you're going on, if you think about them, and it's, it's okay to think about them, for a little bit, nothing will happen. You get a little aches, a little pain here and there, nothing is going to happen. But if you're constantly thinking about them all day long, constantly thinking about your situations, and constantly thinking about your troubles and your issues, then you will be paralyzed. Just like the cup, if you hold it all day long, it will be, you'll paralyze your arm. If you think about all your problems all day long, you'll paralyze yourself, you'll paralyze your spirit. So it is incumbent upon us that when we come to Yom Tov, when we're coming to the holiday of Pesach, we take our cup of troubles and we're putting it down. And we're saying, God, we'll pick it up after Yom Tov. We can pick it up afterwards. Reb Simcha Banim of Peshischa goes and quotes a, a pasuk in Yeshayahu, in Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 12. And he goes and he says, Ki b'simcha teitzu, says the pasuk. What it literally means is that with happiness, you will go out. So how does Reb Simcha Banim of Peshischa goes and answers this? And he goes and he says, with happiness, with the, the, the effect of happiness, and then teitzu, you could go out of any of your troubles. Any of your troubles, because the power of Simcha is so powerful, it could take you out of any of your problems. Now, it's very interesting, when you look at the holiday of Pesach, the holiday of Pesach is the holiday of Emunah. And in fact, Pesach is known as the Rosh Hashanah of Emunah. It's known as the Rosh Hashanah, the new year of Emunah. We know that it is on the account of our Emunah in God that we were redeemed in, from Egypt, and it's also on the count of Emunah, on God, that we will be redeemed in the times of Mashiach. And not only that, the Gemara Sotah tells us that the merit of the righteous woman, of the Jewish people, that's why they were redeemed. What did they do? They had tremendous amount of Emunah. How did they have tremendous amount of Emunah? They continued having children, even though they knew the risks, even though they had pure Emunah in God. And because of that, they, we had the merit to go and be saved. And so too in the future, Galut, which we're, we're dealing with right now, we're in the ikvas of the Mashiach, we're in the, we're in the, the footsteps of Mashiach, we're right here. This is going to be a merit of the woman. And even furthermore, you have matzah, the matzah that we eat on Pesach, the Zohar describes it as a michla de mehemnusa. It means food of emunah. It's food of emunah. 
And the essence of, and if you take all aspects of Pesach is actually emunah. You look at the essence of the, of the mitzvah of Pesach, one of the essence, one of the main mitzvot is what? It's something called a mitzvah called Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. We have an obligation to go and speak about the exodus of Egypt. And what is the, what, what our sages tell us? The kol ha-marbelisaper, whoever goes and, in, that increases, they continuously speak, then what? Ha-reize mishubach. They are considered more praiseworthy. Why? If you think about it, when you do a mitzvah, once you finish the mitzvah, you finished it, and that's it. The mitzvah ends. Why is it that the mitzvah of Sipu Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, it's something that the more that you do, the more that you're, that it's Meshubach. So the Slonim Rebbe goes and explains that because the holiday over here, the, what we're dealing with of, of the holiday of Pesach is Emunah, this means that this is imbuing the hearts in each and every Jew of Emunah throughout the entire year. And no matter who the person is, that's why the, the Haggadah says, Afilu kulanu chachamim, even if we're all chachamim, kulanu nevonim, we're even the greatest sages, then it's a filu, it's still a mitzvah to go and speak about Yitzhak time. Why? Because everybody needs a boost in emunah. And this gets obtained from Pesach. This gets obtained from Pesach. Now, when we look at what is emunah, this Nisivot Shalom goes and explains like this. There's three aspects, and that's how he plugs it in to the holiday of Pesach. He says, number one, is that there is a belief in the creator of the world. Number two, hashkacha pratit. This is divine providence, meaning that there's an effort that God does and makes himself to go into every detail in our life. And number three is that the Jewish nation, Klal Yisrael, there's a unique divine role and mission for the Jewish people. Now let's see how it all plugs into Pesach. You have number one, that God is creator of the world. This is by all the miracles that God did on, uh, you know, on Yitzhak Mitzrayim. This is, we see that God is the creator. The fact that Hashkacha Pratit, there's divine providence, this is the Esel Makot, the ten plagues, you see how everything was Midah Keneged Midah. Everything was Midah Keneged Midah. And I'll be honest with you, the, the real type of class that I wanted to give tonight was the continuation on my ten, the, the, the series that we spoke about, ten Makot. That's what I wanted to speak about, but I, but because of what I went through, I was like, you know what, we all need this. And I had to switch gears, and this is where I feel that we need to go and speak about the Emunah and the Simcha that we have to have on on Pesach. That was number two. Number three is the Yitziat Mitzrayim. What did it lead to? It led to the Matan Torah, the revelation of the Torah, the giving of the Torah to the Jewish nation. This is the, the Jewish nation's unique role and mission. So we see over here, the Pesach is essence is Emunah. Our happiness, we spoke about this for the past few weeks continuously, is the essence of, of happiness is Emunah. And we see over here, this is where everything is getting plugged in. But this is where the, the, the essence is, but it, it doesn't, it's not enough that you just go into Pesach and you get the Emunah. You have to go, and we have to go, each and every single one of us, and prepare for it. I want to share with you what the Ben Chai says. When the Jewish people were in Egypt, they worked very, very hard with the, for the Egyptians. But the Egyptians were very, very, the Mitzrim were very stingy. They, what, even when they fed them, they, they fed them matzot. And what is matzot? Matzot doesn't digest quickly. You can't eat it in large quantities. And it, was, it would be very difficult for the digestive system. So the, the Egyptians want to go and trick the, you know, get the Jewish people also through the digestive. They were trying to just like get us from all angles. But what did the Jews do? The Jews went and they ate matzot even in their own homes. So when they ate even in their own homes, it had a different effect on them. Now, why would they do that? Why would they go, if they're already eating it during the day, why would they go and eat matzot also in their own homes? So the Ben Chai goes and gives a story. And said there was once a rich man. And this man was very, very stingy. 
And if it happened to be that a guest would come to his table, the, um, he, the, this rich man, and he was embarrassed by it, but he, he couldn't help himself, he would prevent the guest from eating too much. He didn't want, he was so stingy even with his food. So one time a guest gets to his table and he goes to his table and he sees, the guest sees that the, the, this owner, the stingy owner is cutting up the bread and he's giving all the entire family members big pieces of bread. For him, he gives them a very, very small olive size Kazai, a very small piece of, uh, of bread. And he goes and he finishes the bread. And then he's waiting for more, but the host is not giving him. So this, this, this guest was a poor person. He was very, very smart. He saw what was going on. So he goes over to his host and he tells him some sort of like crazy, like miracle through nature that was going on. And the host was like, what? This is really what you're telling me? This is really what's going on? Oh, come on. There's no way. So the poor guest says, oh, you don't believe me? He goes and he, he stands up. He snatches up, you know, from the middle, from the, one of the guests, from one of the people in the home, uh, the, a big slice of bread. And he says, I'm willing to swear on this piece of bread that what I'm saying is true. And all of a sudden, the whole season holding the piece of bread. He's like, no, 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 come on. You don't need to go and make us oath over here. Sit down, relax, put the bread. So he sits down, but he takes the bread and he puts it next to him. And now he starts eating it. And the host is like, can you believe this? Look at this. He's going. So he goes. And the next meal comes in. And the next meal comes in. It's, uh, it's rice and meat. And he tells the servant that's, that's, uh, you know, giving out the, the, the dishes. He says, give the, you know, under the breath, give the, give the guest a tiny piece of meat and a tremendous amount of rice. So he goes and everybody in the entire table gets large portions of meat, small portions of rice, large portions of meat. And then this guy gets small meat and tre- uh, a tremendous portion of rice. So, the host now is like thinking, he's like, you know what? This guy is a little trickster. He goes over to the, to, this, to his guest and he says, listen, we have a rule over here. We know that our sages say that you're not supposed to talk while you eat. So we're all here eating in, in silence. He didn't want this guy to get some sort of other trick to go and he would be able to go and uh, grab something, you know, who knows what else he's going to take from, from the table. So the guest goes and says, yeah, not a problem. I agree with you, of course, but... Saying the words of Torah, the sages said that you're supposed to speak during the table. So, of course, the words of Torah, we're able to speak. So the host is thinking, he says, words of Torah, they're not going to affect me. They're not going to hurt me. Of course, words of Torah, you could say. So he goes over and this guest starts going and he says, you know, there's a ha that you're forbidden for two people, one eating meat and the other eating dairy, to be eating at the same table unless there's some sort of reminder or separation between them. But then he goes and he says, but what about a Jew and a non-Jew? A Jew and a non-Jew, even if they're eating the same type of dish, but one is kosher and one is not kosher, then even if you have a separation from them, it's not going to suffice. Why? So he goes and he says, because a non-Jew, what could a non-Jew do? A non-Jew could go, and now this is where the guest gets up, and he grabs the host's plate, and he grabs his plate, and he says, watch, watch what a non-Jew could do. A non-Jew could go, and he grabs both of the plates, and he swaps them. And he saw, saw how quickly I did that? And the Jew won't mind you and I didn't even realize. And the Jew is going to go and he's going to eat food that's not kosher. And he sits down and he's about to eat from the plate that is host. And the host sees, he's like, look at this guy, how clever he is. Like, what's this guy doing? He says, you know what? I can't, I can't do it. And the, the, the host couldn't do it. So what he did was, as he quickly calls on the servant and he says, listen, servant, you forgot to go and you forgot to go and, and, um, salt the food. He says, you can't. Look at the guest is about to eat the food. He's going to about to assault it. So the guest hopped. The guest understood what was going on. So the guest said, no, 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 no. He says, it happens to be my doctor told me that I can't have salty foods. So it's really good that you did that. That so, And then the, you know, the guest, had, the host had to go and salt his own food. And long story short, this guest was able to eat a full meal. And this is what happened, says the Benishchai, 
that the Jewish people did in Egypt. The Egyptians wanted to go and wanted to trick the Jewish people and give them matzot, give them things that will be bad for their digestive system. So what did the Jewish people do? They went and they ate matzot in their own house so that they got used to it. When they got used to it, so then they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the matzah at home. They enjoyed the matzah also during, uh, during the day. Now, when the Jewish people ate the matzah, what did we say that the Zohar, you know, says? That it's michla de mehemnusa, it's, it's food of emunah. So they were preparing for the emunah that they were going to be able to go and leave Egypt. And we know Pesach is also the Rosh Hashanah of emunah. So we have to go and we have to utilize this time. Now, we don't eat, you know, there's a minag not to eat matzah during this time, but we work on our emunah during this, this time to be able to come into Pesach with such simcha, such happiness. And this is something very interesting where the Ben Ishchai brings another, one of my favorite stories, uh, the Ben Ishchai. Uh, I love all the stories. Uh, this, is, uh, this is something, I don't know, connects with me. The Ben Ishchai goes and asks a question like this. We go on uh, the Sedal night and we take the Milamatzah and we break it into two pieces. The larger half, we go and we hide it till the end of the meal. And the question is, why do we do that? Why do we go and, and take the larger, we break the matzah, the middle matzah, we break it and we hide it and we wait till the end of the meal. And it's also regarding with the kids and stealing. We're not going to get into that. But Ben Ishai goes and explains with a mashal a story as follows. And he says that there was once three friends. And these three friends were very, very close. And they decided that they're each going to go on their own ways for a set amount of years, and they're each going to learn a discipline, a, a center, a, a, like a, a knowledge. Each one's going to go to a center, a different center, and then they're going to come, they're going to reconvene in one location in a few years' time, and they're going to share what they learned with, the, with their friends. So they all went on their separate ways. A few years go by, and they all meet in the same location, and they say, so, what did you do? What did you learn? What did you learn how to create? What did you learn how to understand? Which, which wisdom did you go? So the first one goes and he says, I learned how to build a telescope. They're like, a telescope? What's a telescope? He says, a telescope is this like long tubular, you know, piece of metal with glass that you're looking from the small end and you look out through the large end and you could see things that are from very, very far away. You could see it as if it's very, very close. They were like, wow, that's, that's unbelievable. And the other man, the other guy goes and says, ah, you think that's a, you know what I learned? I learned how to make an automobile. So they're like an automobile. What's an automobile? It says an automobile is something that has four wheels and it uses, you know, gasoline and uses mechanical engineering and uses all these different types of, of advanced tech, uh, you know, technology that you're able to travel very, very long distance in very short periods of time. They're like, that's amazing. That's unbelievable. And they go to the third guy. So what did you learn? What did you study? And the third guy goes and says, I, I went to study medicine and I learned how to make a medicine that heals all problems. All problems. They're like, wow, that's, that's really impressive. So they go and say, listen, we're sitting over here. Let's see, uh, you know, let's, let's see, utilize our, our talents. They go and uh, the guy with the telescope says, you know what? Let's see what's going on. He takes out this big telescope and he points it to the kingdom, to the king's pa- castle. And they go in and they're zooming in, they're zooming in until they go to the, they see one of the bedrooms. Everybody is surrounded. One person that's laying on the bed. And they're like, oh no, what's going on? And as they're looking, they see that it's the princess. And they notice by the faces around that the princess is very sick. And it looks as if they're, you know, she's about to pass away. The, you know, the king and the queen are crying over there. The doctors are shaking their head. No, they don't know what to do. So the three friends are like, well, maybe we could do something. And they, and they were all like, yeah. You know, the guy with the car, with the automobile says, listen, I brought my car over here. Jump into my car. We could zoom over there and get over there. Maybe we can help them. So all three of them jump in the car. They race over there. Within a few minutes, they get there. 
And they jump in and they go and they ask the guard, it says, is everything okay? What's going on? We saw that there's some sort of commotion with the princess. And the guard is like, you know, down. He's like, yeah, you know, the princess, unfortunately, she was diagnosed with a very, very severe illness and it doesn't look good. The, the doctors gave up hope. And, you know, so the guy with the medicine says, you know what? I, I'm a doctor. I, I have a special type of uh, medicine. Maybe I could heal. So the officer said, "If it's, hold on one second. He ran, he tells the king. The king says, Don't, what are you waiting? Bring the doctor in here. And all three of the, of the friends rush in. And the doctor goes, looks at the, at the patient, looks at the princess. And he says, you know what? I, I think this will help. He goes and he makes his concoction and he gives her this medicine. And slowly, slowly, she gets out of her, out of her malady and she, and she comes fully healed. The king was so thankful. He's like, this is my only daughter. He says, you, each three of you, are, I know you guys all work together. You're going to be immensely rewarded. One of you are going to be married to my daughter. You're going to be the, the prince. You're going to be the next king. The other two of you will be high ministers. But who is going to be what? You guys decide by yourselves. So they go and they're talking amongst themselves. Who's going to be the king? Really, it should be me. You know, says the guy with the telescope. Because if I wouldn't have seen him, I wouldn't have been able to see the. We wouldn't have known where to go. And then the guy with the car says, wait a minute. He says, you could have seen them, but without my car... You wouldn't have been able to get there. And the guy with the medicine, it says, with your telescope and with your car, it wouldn't have helped that we would have gotten there because it has to be with my medicine. So the king sees that they're arguing and no one can come to a conclusion. So he goes and he says, you know what? Let's ask my daughter what she thinks. So they call on the daughter and the daughter is very grateful. And she says, you know what? You're right. All three of you are right. The guy with the telescope, I needed you. The guy with the car, I needed you. The guy with the medicine, I needed you. But the guy with the telescope, I don't need you anymore. The guy with the car, I don't need you anymore. But the guy with the medicine, he says, if I ever get sick again, I need him. I need him the most. So I choose the guy with the medicine. Says the Ben Ishchai, there are three partners to a creation. There's man, the, the man who has his two parents and God. Two parents is two of the partners and the third partner, there's three partners. Two of the partners is, is your parents and the third partner is God. Who do we need the most? Even the parents need God. We need God and the parents need God. So who's the most important? God, just like the medicine. We could go and we'd say, you know, that to the parents, yeah, you brought us into this world and we're forever grateful and we have to do kibbutz Abayim, we have to do all that. But for God, we need God till the day that we die and beyond. Says the Ben Ishchai, says, what do we do when we break the matzot? When we break the matzot, we take the larger priest. That represents HaKadosh Baruch Hu, That represents God. We put God and we put it all the way to the end, to the Afi Koman. Why? Because we're telling our, our, kid, our children, we're telling ourselves that we need God the entire time. We cannot survive without God. Through the entire Sedel, we're going and we're waiting. We're holding on to God. We're, 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 we're savoring that Afi Koman. That last, that final, the final matzah that we have over here. This shows that we need God's help every single moment. This is the matzah. The bread of Emunah, the food of Emunah. This is the food of Emunah that we have to go and this is what we get on the holy night of Pesach. And what have, what is Chametz? The opposite, the opposite of Matzah. That, I say just also, represents the evil inclination. Meaning that it takes us away from our Emunah of God. And therefore, what do we have to do before Pesach? We have to get rid of anything that undermines our Emunah. Anything that goes, and the days that we're going during that, now we're all being tested. We're all being tested so bad. And it's something that is incumbent upon us that we have to go and cleanse ourselves. We have to cleanse ourselves from our Chametz, from our evil inclination that's trying to take away our Emunah, trying to take our Simcha away. The, the, the Satan is going and saying, let's see how happy they're going to be this Yom Tov. When they're in the hotel, the five-star hotel, they're happy. But let's see how happy they are right now. We have to work on ourselves and show God, no, we're going to be happy. We're going to work on ourselves. We're going to be even more happier somehow this year. 
Now, to tell you something that's very interesting that I came across, the Makkah of Devil, uh, the plague the, the, of pestilence, it says something very interesting in the Haggadah. It says, Biyad Chazakah, with a strong hand, Zuha Devil. This is the Makkah, this is the plague of Devil of pestilence. Now, I saw in, uh, in the Haggadah, Baruch Shamar from Rabbi Baruch Epstein, he goes and says, why is this particular plague, the plague of pestilence, singled out as the hand of God? All the other ones are finger of God, but over here it's talking about a hand of God. So the simple answer is this is the fifth plague. And since it's a fifth plague, so it's like every every plague is like a finger of God, this is a hand of God. That's a simple answer. But then he goes and says, but the pasuk in Dvarim doesn't just say a hand. It says, biyat chazaka. It says a smitey hand. How is this plague then worse than all the other plagues? And the answer is that pestilence, devil, this plague, this this literally plague, is the worst of all the plagues. Why? Because there was no escaping it. When pestilence strike, anybody can become its victim. And he proves this, Rabbi Baruch goes and proves this, from the second book of Shmuel, in the 24th chapter. King David was getting punished for an unauthorized census of the Jewish people. So the prophet comes over to King David, and he gives him a choice of three types of punishment. Look at that. The King David was on a level that he was able to choose his punishment. What was the three types of punishment? Number one was seven years of famine. Number two, three months under attack. Or number three, three days of pestilence. You could see the severity, by the way, by the, you know, the time frame. What did King David choose? He chooses pestilence. Why? So David reasoned like this. King David reasoned like this. David Amalek. He says that if he would choose a famine, then people would say, why? This is because that he was wealthy. So he would choose the famine because he would be able to avoid starvation. So he says, no, I'm not going to choose that. If he chooses the attack uh, on his nation, then he's thinking, okay, but he has his soldiers that will protect him. He will be protected. He says, I can't choose that. He says, only pestilence, only devil, only this plague, this affected everybody, including the king. And since he, it was a punishment for his wrongdoing, he went out of his way to choose a punishment for, for something that he would not be immune and we see over here that pestilence over here, why was it considered one of the worst plagues? Because there was no escaping it. Whether you're rich, you're poor, you, you don't escape it. What we're dealing with right now is like pestilence. It's, 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 this is a plague. It's a plague. The coronavirus this is a plague. And we see over here, no one's escaping it. I mean, we hope and we wish for entire cloudies all to, go, to just be, you know, finish with it and escape with it. But when you look at it, no one's escaping it. It's, it's affecting everybody. It's affecting the, you know, our greatest and, and our, our, we only have greatest. It's affecting everybody. So, how are we going to go and overcome it? And I found something I want to share with you where I think a little bit of a chidush where we could go and maybe we could use this power to go and overcome it. When the Jewish people were, go- were crossing the Yamsuf, when they were going, the, the Egyptian army was, came over to them and they were chasing them from one side and the Jewish people were blocked and behind them was the, was the ocean, was the, was, was the sea. And what was going on? The Jews were stuck. The Egyptians were coming attacking them, but the sea wasn't one side. So what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? Moshe Rabbeinu went and he started praying. He started praying as a Jew is supposed to do. Whenever someone's stuck, you know, that's what you do, you pray. And he started praying and Moshe Rabbeinu was praying. And what did Hashem respond to him? Hashem responded to him in Shemot, chapter 15, verse, chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse 15. He says, Vayomer Hashem al Moshe. And Hashem said to Moshe, Ma tizak elai? Why are you screaming at me? Daber al Yisrael Speak to the Jewish people and let them go to the ocean. Let them go. Says the Arachayim HaKadosh. He says, what's going on over here? He says, you know what's going on? He says, the Satan was opposing the impending miracle that was happening with for the Jewish nation. We all know that the sea split and the Jewish people walked through. And the Satan says, why should the Jewish people do it? 
Why should the Jewish people be able to deserve this miracle? The Jewish people worshipped idols the same way that the Egyptian people you know, worshipped idols. So, because of that, the, the Jewish people, they were subject to the attribute of justice, the Midat Hadin of God. And we have a tradition that God's respective attributes, whether it's Midat Hadin or Midat HaChamim, whether it's judgment or mercy, can be strengthened or weakened in accordance to our deeds, or what we do perform or what we do not perform. So what did God tell Moshe? God told Moshe Rabbeinu, He says, speak to the Jewish people. Go and perform an act of faith, such as entering the sea. And when you enter the sea, then I can activate my attribute of mercy. Because you will give a merit that will, that, will, that will give the attribute of mercy to overcome, and then I'll be able to do this miracle for you. Following such a demonstration of faith, Nachshon ben Amidah Nadav went, and he was able to go through, and because of that, Moshe Rabbeinu was able to raise his staff, and all of a sudden he saw the miracle of the, spe- the sea split. Why? Because they needed, they needed that action. They needed that level of emunah. They went to the level of emunah, they went into the ocean, and then it split. Maybe, maybe we could say a little bit of a chidush over here. We could say something similar, that we have to also demonstrate emunah in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, That we're going into this seddah with happiness. And we're going to go and we're going to give, a, we're going to give this, this, uh, our, our mindset, a, a, the emunah, that we will be okay. You know what? And again, we don't know that, that who's going to be okay and who's not. And we have to obviously go and do our ishtadlut. We have to obviously do everything that we were required to do, including introspection. But we're going into the Seda with happiness. And maybe, just maybe, with the merit, with the schut of working on ourselves and going into the Seda with happiness, maybe this will give us the merit to be saved and, and finish with this, with this plague, with this makah already. Now, Rabbi Dessler goes and explains something very beautiful. He goes and he quotes the, the Avaz de Rab Nassan. And he says, A mitzvah, a good deed, that is done with a little bit of hardship, is worth a hundred times more than a mitzvah that's done easily. So he goes and explains like this, that when somebody comes and he's doing a mitzvah and he has just a little bit, a little bit of tzah, a little bit of, of suffering while he's doing this mitzvah, this mitzvah is now multiplied a hundred times. Now what happens if he has two levels of tzah, two small things of tzah? What happens? Then he gets paid that one mitzvah as if he did 10,000 times. It's a hundred times a hundred. Each one is a hundred. That's just a small one. So when a person, and, and we're all going through sufferings during our time, during our days, this is, we're all going through sufferings. If we are able to go and continue to do the mitzvot with joy and happiness, every mitzvah that we have, that we do, grows dramatically with every single type of, of suffering that we're going through. So could you imagine... The, there's so many mitzvot when you go on to, you know, on the Seder night. I, I once heard a calculation. You talk about like, uh, n- not, not just biblical. We're talking about biblical and rabbinical. You're talking about like, you can have like 64 or something mitzvot on one night. Unbelievable amount of mitzvot. Can you imagine the difficulties that, that the Jewish nation is going to be coming into Pes- the Pesach night? You know, without any family. You know, who knows with one sick, with a pass, someone passed away, with who knows how many things. And we're coming here with all this and we're going to be able to overcome it and have simcha and joy on Seder night. You know what that's worth? Maybe, maybe this is the schut that we need before Mashiach comes. God is saying, you know what? He's throwing us all these things at, just to give us all that extra merit that we need to bring Mashiach. This, during the Six-Day War, Meri Yeshiva was, uh, you know, was, where were they, they, in the shelter they were, in the basement of where was the cafeteria. And after they war, they noticed that three huge bombs landed on the roof of the building, but they didn't explode. So when the Rosh Yeshiva, when the head of the Yeshiva, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, went and he heard about this, he said, he tells the boys, he tells the, the people in the, in the Yeshiva, he says, you should know, the miracle 
It's a crazy miracle. Three bombs landed on the yeshiva. None of them exploded. He goes and he says, you know where this miracle was from? It wasn't from your merit. He told the boys, it's not because of you. He says, you want to know why we were saved? There was some, there was an aguna. Aguna is a woman whose husband refused to give her a divorce. And she lived next door to the yeshiva. And when the bombs were falling, she also ran to this bomb shelter with the yeshiva, uh, you know, to be saved. And the Rosh Yeshiva, the, the head of the yeshiva goes, where Chaim Shalavitz, he said he heard her speaking to God. And he, he, this broken woman, this broken-hearted woman goes, and he, this is what she, and I'm going to quote for you what she said. She says, Master of the world, I, this is the woman saying, the woman who her husband left her and refused to give her a get, uh, a, a bill of divorce. He says, she goes and says, Master of the world, I have every single right to complain about what my husband did to me. And he should be held accountable for every ounce of torment that he put me through. But she goes on and she says, I am prepared to forgive him for hurting me so that you will forgive all our sins and allow us to remain safe and survive this war. That was her prayer that the rabbi heard this woman say while bombs were falling on top of the yeshiva. These words, said the rabbi, is what saved our yeshiva. Because sometimes we go through difficult times and some people have, we can get complaints against God. But if we can go and muster the strength to accept these challenges and channel our emotions towards either heartfelt prayer, we could, this prayer could bring the salvation that we desperately need. And this is what the Tana de says, something amazing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu, he says that, something crazy over here, that even if someone does not pray, even if someone does not learn Torah, even if someone does not prefer good deeds, he will have his livelihood, his panasa doubled, if he accepts God's will in all situations, and he believes that God is always doing the best thing for him, do we understand the power of Emunah? There's a story with the Vilna Gon's daughter, that she passed away a day before her chupa. And that night, his mother came into him and in a dream, the Vilna Gon's mother, and she told him, my son, if you would know what you accomplished when you gladly accepted this tremendous tragedy, he had to bury his daughter. He says, you would have danced at her funeral, with greater joy than you could have danced at her wedding. Now, obviously, he didn't do that. He didn't dance at the, at the funeral. But the power of accepting what God does is so powerful. And right now, we have that opportunity to accept what God does. We're stuck at home. We can tell God we accept it. Unfortunately, we lost a loved one. We have no choice. We tell God we accept it. We go, and unfortunately, whatever troubles that someone's going through, we're going and we're telling God, God, I know that you know what's best for me. And this is what's best for me right now. And I accept it and I love you. You, we don't know the power that that holds. Rav Yaakov Naiman, he passed away in 1983. It was Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Or Yisrael in Petach Tikva. He lost both parents when he was 14 years old. He was all alone in the world, but he loved learning Torah. And in Yeshiva, the 14-year-old, once a week, all the other students received packages from their parents. Food, clothing, letters, all these, you know, nice uh, packages from the parents. But of course, he didn't receive anything. He didn't have any parents. Once, instead of feeling sorry for himself, he turns over to God. And he says, you are the Avi Tomim. You are the father of the orphans. He says, you are my father. He says, I can forgive the fact that I don't get any packages. But please, instead of packages, help me with my learning. Let me be successful in Torah. The rabbi later recalled that God answered his prayers right away. Because from that point on, the, his level of learning was in an entirely different plane. 
We have so much power that we could utilize it. And we also have to know something that's very important coming to these days, that whatever the test that you get, as difficult as it is, God only gives you a test that you could pass. And listen to this story from the Rebbe Mikotsk. It was after Shachrit on Shabbat. The town of Kotsk over here, there was somebody, you know, came running into the synagogue. And he said, there is a certain store that was burning down. And that person was praying in the shul. And he's saying, you know, Shmuel's store, store is burning down. Shmuel's store is burning down. And when Shmuel heard that his store is burning down, this is his panasa, his entire fortune, everything was at stake, he fainted. He just passed out. His friends revived him. And the second they came through, he's like, wait a minute, my store? And he fainted again. And they revived him, and he kept on coming back, and he kept on fainting again. He kept on coming back, and he kept on fainting again. The Kutzka Rebbe saw this. He went, walked over to Shmuel, and he whispered to his ear, he says, it's a mistake, it's not your store. He says, oh, it's not my store. The rabbi said, it's not my store, it's not my store. He goes, and he's calm, and he gets up. On Motzeh Shabbat, they all went to investigate which store burned down. And they saw that it wasn't his store. It was a different store. They were like, wow, the rabbi has Guach HaKadosh, rabbi's miraculous powers. So the rabbi says, no, I didn't perform any miracle. He says, and I says, I don't have Ruach HaKadosh. He, that's what he says. He says, I simply saw that Shmuel could not handle the situation. And I realized that his store couldn't have bur- burned down. Why? Because God doesn't give a person a test he can't handle. Shmuel couldn't handle it. So what that must be? That it didn't happen. It's not true. It didn't happen. That's the level. That's the power of what we realize. When we get tested, we get tested by things that we can pass, that we can, that we, that we can overcome. And this is why, this is something very beautiful, that when God tested Avraham Avinu, the crazy, crazy test of sacrificing your son, you know what it says over there? It says that God did not directly command to, sac- to Avraham to sacrifice his son. Why not? Why not? Because he realized that if he would say that, he would not be able to go and overcome his test. Now what happened was, it's, what happened was, is that he went, and he did it, uh, that God even put this in, in like steps. And how did he do it in steps? He goes over to Avraham and he says, Kach es, kach na Take your son. Step one. And then he says, which son? Your only son. Step two. Wow, you know, I have, you know, two sons. I don't have only one. Asha the one that you love. That's step three. And then he says, well, he says it in four steps. Rav Chaim Shmuelavitz says, why did God ease Avraham to this test? Because otherwise, Avraham says, Rab Chaim Shmulevitz would not have been able to pass it. God needed to give him a four-step introduction to ease Avraham to this test, because that he would be able to handle. But the, without that, he would not be able to handle. Says Rav Lugasi, and this is brought down, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, Rav David Asher's book, in Living in Muna. He asks this question, and he says, why didn't God go a little bit further and say, you know, God, God I love you. God should tell Avraham, Avraham, I love you. And go do this, it's for your good. You know why he didn't go in step, he only did four steps, not five steps? Because the four steps was enough to allow Avraham to pass the test. God knows exactly what we can handle. He knows exactly what we can't handle. And he gives us only what we can handle. That means that every single test that we have in our life, and even the test that we have now, our upbringing, our situations, everything, our marital, everything that happens in our life, we have the ability to overcome it. We have the ability to pass this test. Rabbeinu Bachya goes and says that not only do we have the ability to overcome these tests, but we also agreed to these tests. Listen to something amazing, something fascinating. He says that 
before a person comes into this world, God shows that person what type of life that person will lead. And God informs us every single affair, every single thing that happens in our life, how many years we'll live, how we would die, how much panasa we would have, who we would marry, who would this, how comfortable or needy, how dependent or into every single little detail, it's already told to us beforehand. And we agree and we give full consent on all the tests that we have in our lives. So we can never say, oh God, why did you do this to me? We signed off on this. As hard as it may seem, we signed off on this before we came down to this world. We saw it, we wanted it, and we accepted it. This is what we're, this is the, how we, 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 we came into this world. There was, a, there was a story by, brought down by Rabbi Eliezer Parkov. And it's told over by Rabbi Avram Gross. He was, he served as a chaplain in Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And every day he was a rabbi, he was a chaplain, he was, he would go and he would receive a printout of all the Jewish patients. And he would make his rounds, you know, and, uh, you know, speak to the Jewish patients. And he realized that, you know, this is, you know, it's just through a computer and it's sometimes, you know, people slip through the crack. So he would also look at the names of all the patients to see if any name would be Jewish that wasn't on the list. And one time he goes and he comes across a particular, you know, familiar name. This is a name that, you know, before in World War One, before World War One, it was a huge, huge Talmud Chacham. And he's like, wait a minute, this is such a famous Jewish name. He goes like, and this guy's not on the Jewish list. So he goes over to this, he goes over to the room of the patient. And he says, uh, you know, he introduces himself. He says, is it, are you by any chance related to Rabbi so-and-so? And he says, whoa. He says, the patient goes, says, you knew my great-grandfather? And as he's speaking to this patient, the rabbi looks at the, at the you know, at the table, uh, you know, and he just had his meal and it was a non-kosher meal. And he's, the patient saw the rabbi looking at his meal and he's like, I see that you're looking at my, you know, meal. You're probably wondering, you know, what's going on. And he's, the rabbi says, yeah, you know, to be honest, I am. So he said, you know, I used to, you know, I used to keep kosher. He says, but not anymore. He says, I used to keep Shabbat, but no longer. He says, I used to dava, I used to, I used to go and pray. I used to go and put on tefillin. I used to do all these things, but no longer. So the rabbi says, uh, must be you probably went through some sort of uh, hardship. So he says, so the, guy, so the patient goes and says, yeah, you know, I, uh, and he goes and he tells him a story. And he said that they had a son, him and his wife had a son, and his son got sick. And uh, he was 20 years old, very young guy. And we used to stay by his bedside in the hospital. And then Friday night came, Friday afternoon came, and we had to tell him goodbye because we had to go light uh, Shabbat candles. So we hurried home. And when we got home, right before my wife lit Shabbat candles, this, this uh, patient is telling the rabbi, they got the phone call that the husband, that the son didn't make it. And he's, this patient goes and says, since then I have nothing to do with Judaism. I'm done. I have nothing to do with Judaism. So the rabbi says, I see, so you're angry at uh, God. And he says, oh, you bet I'm angry at God. So the rabbi goes to him and says, you know, what was your profession? What was your, you know, what did you do for Panasam? So he says, he, you know, he was a judge. He was, a, he was a, the, the justice of the Supreme Court in Queens, in the borough of Queens. And the guy goes and he says, the patient goes and says, you should know that all the time the federal Supreme Court only repealed two of my cases. And he was very proud of that. He says, wow, you know, the rabbi says it's a wonderful record. But the rabbi says, I'm sure you disappointed though a lot of people. He says, a trial has two sides. You know, you choose one side or the other side is uh, going to be very upset with you. He said, but uh, I'm sure, the rabbi goes to him and he says that you uh, stuck to your guns. You went and when you reached the verdict of the case and you felt that this was right, the law is the law. And the law is often cold, it's often harsh, but, you know, people need to accept it. And he's like, yeah. 
the guy, go, the, the patient goes and says, the law is a law. You have to ex- accept it. So the rabbi goes over to him. Genius, genius. The rabbi goes over to him and says, you know, God is the ultimate chief justice of the supreme court of the entire universe. And he also has to make decisions that we cannot understand. And it looks wrong. It looks, it looks like it's bad. It looks like it's something going, but God knows better. He takes everything into consideration. He takes the past, present, and the future into consideration. And everything has been accounted for. And what do we do? We have to go and we have to accept it. You want to know why the rabbi tells this patient? He says, because it's a law. It hurts. It's painful. But the law is the law. He goes and he says, you had a son. He says, you are a justice of the Supreme Court. You understand it's the law. And this judge stared at him. He dropped his head. And he repeated over and over again, that's the law. That's the law. And he says, I have to accept it. I have to accept it. And he goes over to the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, you think you could get me kosher food in the hospital? He says, look how quickly he changed. All of a sudden, he's like, you know what? This is the law. We're going through very difficult times right now. There's death, there's sickness, there's panasa, there's pieces, shalom bite, anxiety, depression. There's so many things that are going on over here. The list goes on and on. But one thing we have to realize, this is the law. God ordered this to happen. This is what it is. The law is the law. You have, unfortunately, you know, people, there are brides that didn't have a wedding. You have parents that are making a blit milah for the first time by themselves. You have family members that want to say yiskal, but they can't. Why? It's the law. This is the law. Unfortunately, it's the law. We have to go and we have to accept it as difficult as it is. And again, we don't ask God for any, any tests. We don't, we don't want any of the tests. But when the test is already given to us, we have to accept that this is the law. And Hashem, in His infinite wisdom and mercy, said this is what needs to be done. I want to finish off with one final thought. Yaakov and his children went down to Egypt. The question is, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu go and exile us into Egypt before taking us as a Jewish nation? The Benish Chai comes and tells a marvelous story. So there was a story of a rich man who raised an orphan in his, in his home. He fed him. He clothed him with honor and abundance, everything. He put him as one of the members of his own family. And one day, there was a knock on this wealthy man's door. And a poor man was begging for a donation. And this rich man, he felt, he felt so much pity for this beggar that he decided he's giving him a hundred gold coins. The, this poor man never saw so much money in his life. He thought maybe he'll get one gold coin. He got a hundred. He didn't stop singing the rich man's praises nonstop. The wife overheard all these praises that is singing to her husband. She was very happy with this. She was very pleased. She says, but then she starts thinking. She says, wait a minute. She says, look at this poor orphan that we took into our own home. It's not our child. We've given everything. We didn't spend a hundred gold coins and we spent thousands upon thousands of gold coins of him. And yet he doesn't give the praises that this poor man who just got a hundred gold coins give. So the husband goes and tells her, I'll show you why. He goes over to this poor orphan who's now older and he says, you know, I've kept you in my home. I've paid for all your expenses. I've educated you. Now you're old enough. It's time for you to go on your own. So the orphan goes and says, gave a kiss to his, uh, you know, to his benefactor, to his, you know, his adapted, you know, adopted parents, the one who took him in. And he says, I thank you for all that you've done. Packs up a few belongings and he goes out into the, into the real world. However, he didn't have any money. So he tried to go and borrow some money that he could have some sort of, you know, apartment, but no one wanted to lend him money. He didn't have any, any, any credit. And he's like, okay, maybe let me try to get, you know, some, uh, some job. But he didn't have, he didn't have any experience. No one was hiring him. And nobody was willing to lend him money. No one was hiring him. And he was going and he was suffering so many hardships until finally he was able to go and borrow money and borrow a loaf of bread. He borrowed a loaf, couldn't even borrow the money, borrowed a loaf of bread. 
nowhere to sleep. He slept in the street. He hired himself out the next day carrying, you know, people's baskets for, for a few pennies. He had three terrible days, one worse after another. And then suddenly a messenger from the wealthy man, the one who, who raised him, comes over to him and says, You're, you know, our, my master wants to come in and speak to you. He goes over back to his, uh, his benefactor and the, this wealthy man says, Listen, I changed my mind. I want you to come and stay with me as you did before, like one of the family. This orphan felt so much joy, such immense happiness. He started blessing his benefactor with so many brachot from no, today until tomorrow. The rich man leaned over and he whispered to his wife and he says, here's the answer to your question. He says, this poor or- orphan, he became accustomed to all our favors and he took them for granted. So it didn't occur to him to thank us. Only after he was sent out of the house, he felt the pains of hunger. He slept on the ground. He went through the troubling, the suffering and the tribulations that he went through. Then he saw how very clearly how much good was on him beforehand. Says the Ben Ishchai, now we can understand what happened to us, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did. HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and he brought the Jewish people from, ex- from Israel to the, you know, to, to the land of exile. They brought them to, from, instead of putting them to Eretz Canaan, they went and they brought them to, to Egypt. Why? That they should never, if, if things were always great, then we would never realize that things could be different. And if we never realized that things could be different, we would have never thanked God for the abundance of goodness. And says the Ben Ishchai, as a result, of us not thanking God for the abundance of goodness, then chas v'shalom, God forbid, the satan, the evil, evil inclination, the, 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 the satan would be able to go and intervene and provoke divine anger because the Jewish people are not saying thank you, are not being grateful. So what did God do? One of the many reasons. God exiled the Jewish people out of to Egypt. And we suffered with mortar, bricks, and hard labor, tremendous amount of suffering that we had. And what happened? Then we were rescued. All of a sudden, we were rescued. We got out of Egypt. At once, the, the, the Jewish people got so many blessings. They saw so many blessings. What happened? They didn't stop thanking God for the goodness. They didn't stop thanking it. You know, we have here, we see people that went through the Holocaust. How they appreciate life. Because they saw the other side. We're looking at now at difficult times. We have to appreciate what we had. And also what we have. And never stop thanking God. We have to learn how to speak like my grandfather, Zechon spoke. This is a present. Everything that we get from God is a present. And what do we say for a present? Thank you, God. We go and we're thankful for everything that God has done for us. We have to be thankful that we have synagogues. Most of them we have and we'll go back into it. We have to be thankful that we had the ability to socialize, to have shiurim, not only, you know, live. We were able to have to show him, you know, live with people in the same room. We have to realize how many things that we have to be thankful for. We have to be thankful for, for the people that we had and unfortunately passed away. I say, thank you, God, for giving me the ability to know my grandfather for so long. Get, thank you for the ability for, that we're all healthy, that everybody else who's still here is all healthy. I mean, there's so many things that we have to be thankful for. This is what we're coming on Pesach. We're coming on Pesach and we're saying to God, we're, we're, we're saying all the miracles that he did. My grandfather nonstop, what did he, oh, he realized that his entire life is a miracle. He was saved nonstop from the Holocaust. He saved so throughout the entire, no matter how much troubles he went through his life, he realized that everything was a miracle. So too, we, we have to go and we have to realize that our life is a miracle. We're living in a miracle. Even though it's a difficult time, we're still, it's, everything's a miracle. The fact that even though the people that do have the, you know, the coronavirus and are getting healthier, what a, what a blessing, you know, they have to make to God. This is something that your body is fighting off things that other people didn't, weren't able to fight. Or people that passed away from it. There's so many things that we have to be thankful for. There's so many things that we have to be grateful for. We're coming to Pesach. And this is my message to every single one of uh, you, including me. This is really for me. 
is that we're coming to Pesach, we really have to go and work on ourselves, that this is going to be a time that we're coming in here and we're going to be happy. We're going to be happy this Saturday night. We're going to be happy coming this next week. We're going to come. We'll have a level of simcha. And how are we going to do that? By working on our emunah. Working on our bidachon. Working and realizing that everything that God does, God does for the best. We have to go and realize that God has calculated every single pro and con of our life. And He gave us this test. And if He gave it to us, we could pass it. Because He gave it to us. And we have to realize and we have to overcome the atzvut, the depression, the sadness, and, and come out of this so happy, such a tremendous simcha, that we will have a Pesach like we've never had before. And one of the reasons is because it's going to be Bezat Hashem with the Korban Pesach in Yerushalayim, B'meheira, B'ameinu. We'll open up for any questions. Okay. Opened up for any questions. No. I didn't unmute. Okay. It's unmute. I'm sorry, what? <coughs> I'm muted? Oh. <coughs> I, uh, I muted all you guys. I muted myself. Okay. Is there any questions? Is there any questions or no questions? Oh, here we go. I see over here. I'm sorry. We have here a question. Um, okay. Let me mute everybody. There's a question that came in, and then I'll uh, I'll unmute uh, everybody else for the next one if there is. Uh, mute all. Okay. A question for the end. I understand the concept and importance of being happy and thankful to Hashem, but I feel like that's easier for me to say. I'm Baruch Hashem home with my family, and we're not sick, but there's tons of people sick and dying. We, can we be fully happy knowing that others are in pain? It doesn't make sense to say I'm accepting Hashem's will, but that other people are suffering. So this is an excellent, excellent question. Um, so the answer is, is, first of all, you don't say, you, you know, it's when we're accepting the, our situation, we're accepting our situation. We don't tell other people, hey, you know, I accept your situation for you. We can't say that. We don't know. We're not in their, in their shoes. In fact, for other people, we have to do whatever it is that we can to go and get, and, you know, and get them out of the situation to whatever it is that we can, whether it's phone calls, whether it's something. And I'll tell, I want to share with you something that I, um, that I heard. Uh, something fascinating. I heard from a from a shiur that I was listening to, that, and I don't remember who said it, so I apologize. Uh, but the the thing was like this: the the gemara in the Darin goes and says that when you go and you visit a sick person, you take one six one sixtieth of a sickness. And the question is like, really, like why? Like if you're doing a mitzvah, you're getting punished by taking one sixtieth of a sickness. So I heard this beautiful answer. Beautiful it says when you visit a sick person. You, what happens? That person gives you a little bit of the sickness. But what does that do? Now all of a sudden your body is producing antibodies for that sickness. So, but you're visiting that sick person. Think about it as like getting that, a vaccine. You're visiting, you're getting sort of an antidote for that sickness that's coming in. So when, when we have people that are suffering during these times, it's so important that you go, you make a phone call. It's so important to go. There's so many people that are suffering. And sometimes you don't even know that they're suffering. But it's still, it's important to go. You call them up and you say, listen, how's everything? How are you doing? And you're going and you're, you're going and you're, and you're sharing in that person's, uh, you know, hardship. So when we're accepting it, we're accepting it for ourselves. And we're accepting it. This is that what God did. We don't tell other people, hey, by the way, you know, I accept your suffering. You know, like this is not, it's a different, it's a different concept. So. Good question, but the, the the idea over here is is this is really what we're focusing to ourselves. And yes, people are going through hardships. Yes, people are going through a very difficult time. But we should do something about it. 
And even if all that is, it's a phone call. Even if all that is, is just like trying to make somehow someone feel just a little bit better. Okay, I got another question. Again, I get the concept. However, when one is stuck with one's family, and it's a hard family situation, and the said there is nothing to look forward to, it all feels forced. How does one channel happiness? Easy to know, to have, but what's a tangible way to make oneself happy when they're just trying to say same? So this is actually a very, very, very good question. And this is something that um, many people are dealing with. And, and it's very, one of the hard, you know, when I, in dealing with a lot of people, one of the things that actually is hard, you know, personally for me is I know people that have very difficult family situations. And sometimes it's abusive. And now not only are, you know, the only free time that they had was when they went to work or when they went to school. That's when they were able to get out of that abusive relationship. And now they're stuck in, in this abusive relationship in their home and they can't do anything. And it's very, very difficult. And, you know, I I can't even imagine what, what these people are going through. But with that being said, what a person has to work on themselves is, is, is to follow that same guidelines is to realize that God knows your situation knows that your situation better than you. Yet, for some reason, God decided that it's not only okay, it's beneficial for you to be there. And again, it's very difficult to say that. It's very, it's actually easy to say that. It's difficult, you know, emotionally to say that. But God realized what you're going through. God knows what you're going. God knows that you're alone. God knows that you're in an abusive relationship. Yet, God put this disease here now and put you in that situation now. Again, if there's something that you can do to get out of it, of course, you have to do your ishtadlut. But you have to realize that God did this and it's beneficial. So the only thing that, that I could tell you to do is work on yourself, just like we're all going to work on ourselves before we go to Pesach, that no matter what's going to be during the Seder night, I'm going to be happy. Sometimes, you know, people misjudge. They go and they do something that they think what God wants and they end and get angry and they have... so And that's not what God wants. We have to realize that we have to go and be Bisimcha on Seder night. We have to go, and, and sometimes it means maybe not, you know, getting a little bit, you know, hardships in our, uh, you know, from from our relatives and and whatnot. The power that you have, and I'll tell you what you could do, maybe, is that the second that you want to answer back, please don't, please don't, and ask God for whatever you want. Ask God whatever you want, because if you're able to go and you're able to go and overcome that, the power that you have. God is what really God is doing, is giving you tremendous amount of merits right then and there. God is basically giving you, you know, like, merits on steroids. He's like pumping it in. He's like, by the way, you could just make like a thousand sedels. That That's the level that you could have. So you have to think about it, that God's doing this to me, and I have tremendous amount of reward. Now, we don't want the test, but if it does come to you, Try. Work on yourself. Try to overcome it. And during that time, ask God whatever it is that you want. Whatever it is that you want. Okay. All right. We'll unmute all for any other additional questions. Or, of course, you could... Um, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I see you. Um, I have... Not a question, but more or less a comment. Let me just mute everybody else, and then let me unmute you. One second. Okay, so you're the only one that's unmuted. Yeah, now we hear you. Um, uh, what I was basically saying in response to the questions about whether or not, um, how can you change yourself, how can you, how can you make yourself happy or whatever it is. Um, when I was going through hardships in high school or whatever it is, one of the things that I would do was, 
it's a mindset. You have to be aware of it. It's very easy to, by default, when you're sad, to feel sad and be sad. And when you're training your mind to be happy, it's a lot easier. It becomes a default. No, I'm happy. No, I'm happy. So when you let yourself be in the default of sadness, it's a lot easier to default on that. So one of the things I would do is every day when I woke up, to create an outlook of happiness for the rest of the day, because it can be really hard, I would think or write down, write down and think, sometimes even say it out loud, three things that I'm grateful for, three things that I'm happy for. Obviously, people have said this before as a mechanism before, but just to become con more consciously aware of it, that's right now in these times that there is good in the world and your hardships are, of course, hard and valid and everything, but there's still good in everything that Hashem does. That is very well said. And just for whoever didn't hear, thank you. For whoever didn't hear, I think that's beautiful, beautifully said. So another great idea is, first of all, put yourself in a mindset of happiness. And how do you do that? So one way is to start thanking God for things that, that are good. Start seeing the good in your life. When you start seeing the good, then all of a sudden, you know, you'll, you, when you see the good, then you'll be able to like, okay, wait a minute. You know, I, I do have a lot to be grateful for. So it's sort of like inf infusing a little bit of happiness into uh, into your own into your own life. So thank you very much. Okay, um, let's open up for any other questions. Unmute all. Okay, any other questions before we close it off? Um, does your grandfather have like any charities or anything? Like no. Yeah, I appreciate that. No, there's no charity set up, but if you want, it'll be very appreciative. You can donate to TorahAnytime.com. Or another great organization, DailyGiving.org. DailyGiving.org um, is, uh, well, I've spoken about this before. It just constantly, this thing is going to blow up. And this is, now we could use it even more uh, than ever, is, you know, we, we're not able to go and we're not able to, we're not able to go and um, be going to the synagogue. In the synagogue, there's, there's charities that you're able to give in. People give a few cents, a dollar a day, whatever it is. Here in this organization, dailygiving.org, um, you're able to go, you give a dollar a day, and every, every, uh, every day they give a dollar to, of your dollar to a different organization. Now there's about 1,200, you know, over 1,200 people doing this already. So that means that every organization, every, every different day, another organization is getting $1,200 because you're all combining it. So if anybody wants to do that, if you want to do the merit of my grandfather, I'm forever grateful. Um, but if not, you could give to Daily Giving, give to Torah anytime. Tremendous amount of organizations. Any charity is, is beneficial to any deceased and to any... Uh, okay, any other questions before we get, close off? No? Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.